Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Good afternoon, everybody. I'll start with the thank yous because those are part of the most important piece. Um, thank you to the Boston Bar Association for this opportunity to be able to talk about our program and to gather together some of the best minds we think in this business of landlord-tenant law. Special thank you to Ido Chorm because she is our marketing and education coordinator. She gathered us all and she put this together and we are grateful for all of her outreach all the time. Um, a special thank you to Joanna Allison, our executive director of the Volunteer Lawyers Project. It actually was her idea that we create a landlord program to advocate for the low-income landlords who um, don't always have access to the best resources. And our partners listed here, um, in addition to the Boston Bar Association, we have the Justice Bridge Program, which is part of the University of Massachusetts School of Law. Our Legal Squirrel Assistant, it's a virtual program that gives us an opportunity to do lawyer for the day at any time of day. And our Hamden County Legal Clinic, who is our partner out in the western part of the state. And of course you, because you took the time today to spend some time with us, learn a little bit about us and our program and some of the laws that are affecting landlords today. Um, so I am the supervising attorney for this program. I was hired by Joanna. Oh, thank you. Next slide. Forgot to say that. Um, the supervising attorney for this program. And, um, and without everybody else here, we wouldn't have the program. So I'm going to move on to specifically who we do have here. Attorney Chris Sicardi from Broderick. Bancroft and Sicardi. Everybody's bios are at the end, so please feel free to reach out to them. Um, Sadie Reynolds, Fierst, Bloomberg, and Ohm, Tim Dills, one of our staff lawyers at the Volunteer Lawyers Project, Alex Roman, one of our staff attorneys at the Volunteer Lawyers Project, Ted Papadopoulos from AMPS Law, Dana Cohen from Cohen Law Offices, and full disclosure, he's my brother. And um, Jennifer Carabayo, who is our bilingual paralegal and also runs much of our um, financial assistance programs together with the other paralegals in the office. So next slide. Who we are. So VLP has been around for 40 years. Many of you have heard of us, hope you've heard of us with programs in family law, consumer law, employment law, bankruptcy, foreclosure, and focusing solely in Boston. We are the new kid on the block focusing on landlord advocacy for low-income landlords, and we do it statewide. So we cover every single housing court and district court in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, we were created during the pandemic, and we've been around about two and a half years. So who are our clients and why do we help them? 
Well, let me start with why we help them, because our clients are not your corporate landlords. You hear the term landlord, it becomes a toxic word for most people, and they consider tenants are out on the street, we're trying to wipe out the rental housing market so that we can bring in high-level tenants paying large prices, and these landlords don't know what's going on in their properties. Well, let me tell you that our landlords do know what's going on in their properties. They share a driveway. They share a front door in some cases. They live together in the same property. They are low income. They are low income, but below the poverty line. That's how they qualify for our services. They rely on the rent to pay their bills, their medical bills, their food, keeping the property up to code and keeping people safe. They need the rent. It's not their fault that the system is not helping everybody. They provide 50% of the moderately priced, actually more than 50% of the moderately priced housing, and they don't have resources. So next slide, please. We help them the following ways. We go through every docket list of every court to see if we can find those landlords who are unrepresented in court, and we reach out to them with information about our program. We have what we call upstream services. We send out our information, how to get in touch with us, and what our services are. So what are our services? We have one-on-one -on -one legal advice. That's our lawyer for the day program. We call it one-on-one -on -one legal advice because we have two ways of doing it. You can sign up online at a time that's convenient for you and get a lawyer who may be able to speak um, with you or now we're appearing in person at Lawyer for the Day right now in three, four courts, and we're looking to expand to all of the housing courts. What else can we help with? Financial assistance application support. I know it's a big, it's a big term. Our landlords need rent. They need mortgage assistance. They need utility assistance. So there are programs out there that are federally and state funded that we can help them access. And that includes mostly around raft, but we also work with other partners on uh, providing good utility opportunities. Limited assistance representation. So limited assistance representation for those who don't know are pieces of a case. It's not the entire case. We are restricted by a grant in what we can do, but we can give advice and counsel to anyone who qualifies for our program, including should you evict? How to evict? What happens when you do evict? What happens when you get to court? What happens when you get a notice from a tenant that there are repairs that need to be done? How can we best help you? And we do it in a limited way. And free educational materials and resources um, to everybody, whether they qualify for our program or not. I'm going to stop talking so that we can turn it over to our esteemed panelists and they can give you a sense of what the law is and some practical uh, solutions to some problems that we face, especially when it comes to delays. Um, Chris, you're up. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Donna. So I'm going to start at the beginning of an eviction case with, I think, what what is the most important part, and that is deciding how to, to bring a case and what kind of case to bring. Um, next slide, please. 
So there are fundamentally three different kinds of cases. And I always tell landlords that it's important to spend some time at the beginning and, and carefully think about what kind of case you'd like to bring. Certainly, the vast majority of, of cases that are filed for eviction are non-payment cases, and that's fairly straightforward. If a tenant is behind in rent, that's, that's an appropriate case. There are two other kinds of cases, um, a no-fault case where a tenancy is ending either under a lease, if, if there's a, a lease term that ends on August 31st, um, or a tenancy at will. And in those cases, they're considered no-fault cases because you, you could bring the case if a lease ends and the tenant doesn't leave, even if they haven't violated the lease or, or done something wrong except for not leaving. And then the third kind of case is a fault case or, or what's called often a cause case. And that's the kind of case where you're saying you, the, the, the basis of the case is that the tenant did something wrong. Um, so either they violated a term of the lease or they violated a law, they did something illegal. Um, and so that's the basis of the case. And it's important to give some thought to this at the beginning because you're going to need ultimately to prove what, what you're alleging. Um, and the other thing that's very important is when you when you bring an eviction case, you need to, to terminate the tenancy um, or have the ter tenancy terminate by, by the end of a lease, say, and then you need to, to file the case. And the reason for the termination and the reason that you put on the court summons need to be the same or the case could be dismissed. And so you really need to give thought to how you're gonna start the case. Um, next slide, please. So I'm just going to touch briefly on each of these types of cases. So as I said before, non-payment cases are certainly the most common. Um, and there are pluses and minuses. These days, it's not very easy to actually evict someone for non-payment. Um, most judges take the view that if the tenant has paid the rent by the time the case gets in front of the judge, they're not likely to give the landlord possession, number one. And, and number two, there are a number of laws in place that sort of stem from COVID that make it difficult to, to get possession through this case. For instance, if there's a pending funding application, um, judgment isn't going to enter and the, and the court isn't going to give you permission to move the tenant out. So a non-payment case is certainly a good way to, to get paid or to get a tenant on an agreement. And in some instances, you can actually evict them if they don't pay um, or can't pay, but it's not always the most effective way to do that. Um, and the important thing to know about a non-payment case is that a tenant can win the case um, under this, this statute, 239, chapter 239, section 8A, if they win damages against the landlord. They're allowed to bring any kind of counterclaim they wish. Um, and so there's a little bit more nuance to it than that that I think we may be touching on a little later. So I'm not going to get into that law in too much detail, except to say that if a landlord goes to court on a non-payment case and they violated the law in any way, it can be hard to prevail. Uh, next slide, please. So the second kind of case is a no-fault case. And like I said before, you would bring this um, if a tenant didn't leave at the end of a lease term, um, or if you have a tenancy at will, and they're otherwise not doing anything 
wrong. They haven't broken the law or, or the lease. Um, these cases are often resolved eventually by an agreement, um, an agreement for the tenant to leave at, at some point. Um, the tenant can also owe rent in these cases. And so you can seek rent as part of the case. It's called an account annexed that you would write in the summons, but the basis of the case itself is not non-payment. Um, and so again, 239-8A applies here and gives the tenant some advantages, but some of those COVID statutes don't apply here because if the case is not brought for solely for non-payment, then you can proceed even if there is a pending funding application. So it has, has some strengths and weaknesses in that respect. Um, the next slide, please. So um, in, a, in a cause case, the, the third kind of case, um, this is a case where a landlord is alleging that the tenant did something wrong, like a lease violation or, or something illegal. Um, these are common cases if, if a tenant is harassing someone or, or selling drugs or any number of, of violations of the lease or law. Um, this is the strongest kind of case if you can win it. It's the strongest kind of case because a tenant can bring counterclaims and 239-88 doesn't apply, but it's also the toughest kind of case because you have to prove what you're saying. So if you're alleging that they're selling drugs, you need to prove it or you're not going to win possession. Um, and that gets to you know, the most important thing here is that the landlord is the one bringing the case and they're called the plaintiff. And so they have the burden of proof which means that if you can't prove the thing that you're saying um, the tenant did wrong, whether it's not pay rent, whether it's violate the lease in some way, um, or whether it's overstaying the, the end of the tenancy, um, if you can't prove those things, you're not going to win the case. And so again, this goes back to what I said at the very beginning, which is that you really need to be careful about how you bring the case. It may be that the tenant has done some things wrong, but you don't have a witness and you can't prove it. And so the only thing you really have um, evidence for is non-payment, in which case you don't want to bring that cause fault case, because if you can't prove that allegation under the rules of evidence in a court in front of a judge, you're not going to be able to win the case. So you need, um, when you're thinking about what kind of case to bring, you need to think about what your complaint is, and then most importantly, what evidence do you have that would be admissible in court in order to, to prove to, the, to a judge or a jury um, that, they're, that what you're saying is true and, and that you should win possession. Everyone, uh, my name is Sadie Reynolds, and I'm going to be talking about um, how you start the eviction process. Uh, next slide, please. Before we get into serving the notice to quit, it's important to discuss what should be included inside the notice to quit. The notice, the notice should tell the tenant if the landlord is terminating the tenancy for reasons related to non-payment, some other lease violation or violation of law, or for no reason at all. And that is what Chris was talking about for the no fault um, eviction. If the landlord has a lease with the tenant, it should state the reason that the landlord can terminate the tenancy and the steps that they must take to do so. Um, under a lease, you can give a tenant either a 14 day notice for a non-payment, or you can give, um, if, it, if it says it in the lease, you can give a seven day notice for other reasons. Um, if it is a tenancy at will, there are basically two types of notices that the landlord can serve. 
there's the 14-day notice for non-payment, or there's the 30-day or rental period um, notice for any other reason than non-payment or for no reason at all. Um, at minimum, the notice to quit must include the names of all tenants. Um, this is everyone who either signed the lease um, or all adults who you know um, occupy the unit and would be considered a tenant at will. It is always also best practice when you are drafting your notice to quit to include the phrase and all other occupants, just in case there is somebody who is living there that um, you are not aware of, so they are included inside the summary process action. You also want to make sure uh, on the notice to quit, you include the tenant's correct address, the reason for the termination of the tenancy, how the tenant can cure the tenancy if it's a non-payment of rent case. Um, the cure language would be that if the tenant reaches a zero balance, the case would then either not be going forward or if it is already in court, that it would be dismissed. Um, you would also want to do the reservation of rights. This just means that the landlord reserves the right to collect what's called use and occupancy uh, during the summary process case. And that's basically the amount that the landlord would be collecting for rent. But you would not be collecting rent during the case because you are terminating their tenancy. So that's why it's called use and occupancy. Um, also, if the, it is a subsidized um, tenancy, there must also be language indicating the right to a grievance hearing um, and the right to a reasonable accommodation. Next slide, please. Um, in consideration of a non-payment of rent case, it's also important to note that you have to complete the form to accompany a residential notice to quit. Um, on, that note, on that form, it also has a box where you have to state whether or not there is an existing agreement with the tenant, whether it is written or oral, um, for a repayment plan. Um, if it is a written one, you have to attach it. If it's verbal, you just check a box. Um, this form also details available assistance programs, applicable trial court rules, standing orders, or uh, emergency administrative orders pertaining to actions for summary process, and it also details uh, relevant federal or state legal restrictions um, on residential evictions. Next slide, please. Um, so when finalizing the notice to quit for service, you want to make sure that the notice you are giving is proper. For example, if you're creating a notice to quit for a tenant at will for a different reason other than non-payment of rent, you would want to give the full rental period. This means that the notice to quit would need to be served before the first of the month, and it would uh, be expiring the last day of that month. Um, you would also need to, it is best practice to go ahead and serve through the sheriff's office. Um, when you do this, just make sure you give enough time to the sheriff to serve the tenant. If you wait until the last few days of the month, um, the sheriff may not be able to serve the tenant before the first, and then you're in violation. Um, and you would need to serve an entirely new notice to quit with a new termination date. Also, um, in addition to serving the tenant through the sheriff, uh, you would also need to serve um, the administrating agency if there is a subsidy attached to the tenancy. Um, this is just an additional step that you have to take if it is um, a subsidized tenancy. Next step, or next slide. Um, so when it comes to filing your case, the first step is you just have to wait until the notice to quit expires. So after the notice to quit expires, the landlord can serve the tenant with what's called a summons and complaint. 
The summons and complaint basically provides the tenant with the notice that the landlord will be bringing the uh, case to court. Um, the reason on the summons and complaint has to match the reason on the notice to quit. So if you're bringing a case for non-payment of rent um, inside on your notice to quit, it has to state non-payment of rent on the summons and complaint. If they don't mirror each other, again, that is um, grounds for a dismissal. Then what you do is you go ahead and you bring the completed summons and complaint to the sheriff's office. You go ahead and you serve the tenant. Um, again, if it is a subsidized tenancy, you also have to go ahead and serve uh, the administrating agency as well. And then once you get what's called a proof of service back for the summons and complaint, you go ahead and you take your notice to quit, your proof of service for your notice to quit, your summons and complaint, your proof of service for your summons and complaint, and as well, if applicable, if it is a non-payment of rent case, you would also um, attach the accompany form. Um, and then you would go ahead and you would file that case inside housing court. Um, if you are e-filing, there is what's called an affidavit of compliance. This basically says that you are um, going ahead and you are... Um, Sorry, <laughs> uh, you're attesting that the notice to quit for non-payment of rent was served on the tenant, and um, it's just required by Chapter 186. Uh, next slide. And then lastly, after you go ahead and you file your case with court, you will uh, receive what's called notice of the first tier event. Um, the landlord or its attorney is required to serve at least 14 days before the first tier court event, um, the notice of the first event on the tenant. So for, uh, for example, if um, your first tier event is on say July 15th, um, service must be made before July 1st. Next slide. Thank you, Sadie, and thank you all for being here this afternoon. So now that we've sort of talked about how you start the case, I'm gonna sort of talk about a couple of topics relating to the property itself and the landlord's responsibility for keeping the property in habitable condition, repairing and maintaining the property and what to do if a tenant doesn't allow the landlord to repair the property or if uh, the landlord thinks that the tenant uh, is damaging the property if they know the land uh, the tenant is damaging the property. Okay, next slide, please. Thank you. So Boston Housing Authority versus Hemingway is sort of one of the foundational cases that established this affirmative duty on the part of the landlords to maintain property in a habitable or livable condition. Mostly the definition of what is habitable is determined by the sanitary code and the building code, which is uh, state documents that can change every now and then. Uh, and this case also established that if the apartment is uh, not in habitable condition and the tenant informs the landlord of those conditions, they're allowed to withhold rent as long as the landlord does not uh, remedy those conditions. So the burden is on the landlord to make sure that uh, the unit is compliant with uh, these state housing and habitability codes. Uh, next slide, please. So some of the things that are required by the sanitary code and the building code uh, is that the landlord re re um, react promptly once the tenant has informed them that there are condition issues like this could be vermin, this could be um, leaks, this could be lack of heating or electrical problems if the landlord is responsible for providing those. Um, 
There's also requirements in the sanitary code to keep common areas reasonably safe. This means um, that the landlord has to provide lighting that um, reacts automatically when people enter those common areas. They have to keep the common areas free of clutter so that they, um, that if there's a fire, then the tenants and anyone else in the building can exit in a safe manner. And the ten, uh, the landlord is also responsible for making sure that all of the um, utilities and appliances function in a safe manner. Um, next slide, please. So this is just a list of some of the things that are required by the sanitary code, um, electrical, gas, plumbing, uh, heating in both uh, the house and hot water. Uh, both of those are separate requirements. Um, and if any of these things are not functioning properly uh, and the landlord doesn't do anything about it, in addition to withholding rent, a tenant can inform inspectional services, which can require that the landlord effect those repairs in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, next slide, please. So there's sort of three different um, scenarios where the landlord can sort of demand or request uh, access to the unit um, without the tenant's uh, consent. Uh, this is obviously in the case of emergency, and this could be a health hazard, uh, such as, you know, um, electrical problems or water damage problems. Um, this is in the case of uh, the landlord is allowed to give a 48-hour notice to a tenant uh, that they are going to come in and inspect the unit. This could be for, you know, uh, homing insurance, or this could be for just general uh, inspections for safety uh, and compliance with the sanitary code and the housing code. Uh, and the tenant is required, if given this 48-hour notice, to let the landlord uh, inspect at that time, um, give if that provision is in the rental agreement. And sort of the last category of when a landlord can enter the property is uh, between the hours of 8 a.m. and 9 p.m. If the tenant is requesting repairs um, because something is wrong with the unit, this could be an appliance, this could be heating, uh, could be really anything um, that's required by the landlord to maintain and repair. Uh, next slide, please. So in the case uh, where, a, if it, even if a tenant is required to let the landlord into the property, uh, sometimes the tenants don't, uh, either because they just refuse or, you know, that's not a good time for them. And so they turn the landlord away, even if they follow the correct procedures or if the landlord thinks there's an emergency going on. So in that can in that scenario, the landlord needs some sort of remedy to get access to the apartment to affect these repairs. And so the way that we do that is we um, file what's called a temporary restraining order, um, which allows a landlord to, you know, by court order, demand that the tenant let them in. And if the tenant does not do that, then the landlord can get a contempt judgment against a tenant uh, which can result in fines or arrests. So the process for getting and applying for a temporary restraining order is a landlord can go to the housing court uh, and file an affidavit listing the reasons that they need this uh, temporary restraining order. Uh, and then they'll have a hearing before a judge, uh, usually that same day, especially for emergency uh, TROs. Uh, they'll lay out the situation of the judge and the judge will um, allow them to enter the uh, apartment via court order. They'll sign a court order and the landlord will have access to that. 
Uh, and then if the tenant continues to refuse, um, then the landlord can go to get a contempt order. So this can be either in the case of uh, a tenant won't allow a landlord into the unit to affect repairs or inspections, or if a landlord suspects or knows that the tenant is causing damage, uh, they can apply for this TRO in the same manner. Okay, next slide, please. So this is sort of what the uh, application for a temporary restraining order looks like. A landlord fill in all this information and put in the material facts, uh, and then this will go to the judge, and then they'll, you know, testify as to the same facts, and the judge can ask any questions, and then grant the order if circumstances require it. Uh, next slide, please. So this is also sort of an example of what um, a contempt uh, contempt order looks like. Um, a judge can just grant this again if the tenant refuses uh, repeatedly after the judge has uh, required it for the tenant to allow the landlord into the unit. Uh, next slide, please. And that's it for me. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Tim. That brings it to me. Um, and I'm going to speak to you all about retaliation and defenses and counterclaims that your tenants might come up with. Next slide. So tenants are entitled to raise counterclaims and they will raise counterclaims. If they do nothing else in the case, they'll raise counterclaims. Um, they don't necessarily have to prove their counterclaims. You have to disprove them as the landlord. Massachusetts loves tenants, absolutely adores them. The laws are written with that in mind. So it is hard when counterclaims are raised, sometimes it is hard to disprove them. Um, it's really important, therefore, to make sure that you go through with the landlord what the claims could be and make sure that they have done things correct. So next slide. The number one thing that people are going to mess up is security deposits. It's the number one thing. Um, most people take one. They don't always know the law about it. A security deposit must be held in a separate interest-bearing account, and interest must be paid yearly, at least, on that amount. If the security deposit is not held in a separate interest-bearing account, or if the interest is not paid, the best course of action is going to be to return that security deposit. If the landlord has already spent it, or the landlord has lost it, or for some other reason the landlord no longer has that money and is unable to pay it, they need to find it. Because the consequence for this is triple damages, which unless you have a at least three months of unpaid rent, that's going to wipe out any of your claims. And you could very well end up with a tenant who is now staying and has the judge's permission to stay because of a security deposit issue. Next slide. So this is a fun little acronym, um, which I think we could only possibly pronounce as slicker. Um, Some landlords can't understand renting. Small landlords, especially, can't understand renting a lot of the time. 
So that's going to be your top five things. Security deposits, last month's rent, conditions, utilities, and retaliation. We've already went through security deposits, so the next slide's going to bring us to last month's rent. So it's kind of a similar thing. Last month's rent has to be kept in a separate interest-bearing account, and you must pay out the interest. You've got two cases right on the bottom here, um, both of which say what I'm about to tell you. The interest has to be paid out at least once a year. It needs to be set aside. If you do not set it aside, then you're going to end up with issues because the tenant is going to want that interest. There is a way that you can finagle this one to, uh, I believe it's a 0.5% interest you can assume and pay that out if you really need to spend that last month's rent. Now, once the last month's rent is used, interest no longer needs to be paid out. So if your tenant says, I'm leaving, use this as my last month, and then they don't leave, you no longer have to pay out interest on that last month's rent. It's been used. All right, next slide. Utilities. Utilities can be a huge problem. It is so important that in the rental agreement, whether it be a lease or a tenancy at will agreement, that there is clear language indicating who is responsible for utilities. If the landlord is going to be responsible or if the tenant is going to be responsible, which utilities is each responsible? It is also incredibly important that you make sure that if a tenant is responsible for their utilities, they are responsible only for their own utilities, not for any other apartment's utilities, not for common area utilities. It is extremely, extremely important that these things are taken care of because they can end up being huge, huge bills. Um, if your tenant is being charged for their utilities and someone else's, that's going to be a considerable problem for that person. And thus it's going to become a considerable problem for the landlord. So if those issues are arising, make sure you know about it first thing and make sure that you can develop a plan to deal with that issue, whether it's immediately fixing the metering so that you are that your tenant is no longer paying excess, give them a rent, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Stipend. Give them the money to repay them for the amount that they spent on cross-metered utilities and make sure that that lease agreement is clear as to who needs to pay utilities, whose name it will be in, and how it needs and how it's going to be metered and calculated. Next slide. And finally, conditions. Failure to follow the state sanitary codes are going to be easy counterclaims. If your 
home has mice, if your home has leaky windows, if your home has a toilet that's kind of on the fritz, your tenant is going to get easy little wins there. If the home has been condemned, if there is an active investigation with your local board of health or board of inspectional services, you really need to consider that before you go forward with an eviction, especially if that board of, uh, board of health or inspectional services report was done less than six months ago, because that's gonna bring us into our next issue. Next slide, please. Which is retaliation. Your tenant's gonna claim retaliation period. That's the, that's the end of the story. They will claim it. Whether you did something or not, they will claim it. The key is not giving them a leg to stand on. So there is a presumption of retaliation in eviction cases in Massachusetts. If within the last six months, the tenant has joined a tenancy union, has called the Board of Health, has reported any sort of issue, has withheld rent because of conditions, which as Tim mentioned, they can do. And if you retaliate, the judge is gonna call it retaliation. And it's difficult to prove that you didn't retaliate if it's done within six months. You have to have a very clear, a, a very clear situation, very clear cause for the eviction. And if you're going with a no-fault eviction, you're not going to have that. So it is important to look at possible causes that they could claim were retaliation and have a plan to deal with each one. And worst case scenario, wait six months. Just cool it and rethink this when the presumption of retaliation period is over. Next slide. So these are your four most common defenses. The first one is the implied warranty of habitability. Every home that is rented or sold has a warranty of habitability. You have to make sure that this home is fit for human habitation. If it is not, that's a pretty easy win. The covenant of quiet enjoyment. A landlord is not permitted to interfere with the quiet enjoyment of their tenant's apartment. If you spend your entire day knocking on your tenant's door and yelling through the door, you're gonna have a problem. That's the obvious one, but less obvious things can be conditions issues, um, issues with other tenants, utility issues. Next up, you're going to have your security deposit law. And again, that is why you have to have that security deposit in a separate account, a separate interest-bearing account, and you have to pay out those interest. You, you have to pay the interest. You, you, you can't get around it. And then finally, there's Chapter 93A, which is the Consumer Protection Law. 
Now, in the kind of work that we do here at VLP, this doesn't come up because our landlords are owner occupants. They are exempt from this. Does not stop tenants from claiming it. And that is why it's important to remember that if you have a small landlord who is an owner occupant, they are not a professional landlord. You need to keep your eyes out for that. The tenant doesn't the tenant doesn't have to do much more than check a box in order to claim it. But it is easy for you to prove that it's not applicable. Next slide. And that's it. All right. So my name is Ted Papadopoulos. I'll be covering uh, why would I want to mediate with my tenant and that I guess this applies for anybody who after listening to Alexandra still wants to be a landlord um, with all those defenses available and the counterclaims. So um, mediation and agreements for judgment are obviously extremely important. As attorneys, we all know or probably remember from our law school days that uh, the vast majority, uh, and if I remember correctly, uh, from law school, which was a while ago, we're talking about 98%, I believe, of the cases that are filed will ultimately resolve by agreement. So mediation is an extremely important tool, not only to try and resolve the case and get your client a good result that takes away the potential for appeals and having to wait a long period of time after the lower court has either entered judgment by agreement or a trial, um, but it's also an opportunity, if that case is one that's going to go to trial, to really get a good understanding of what you're up against. Uh, what exactly is it that you may uh, need to defend against? Um, what defenses is the tenant going to raise that might actually overcome your underlying case? So it's a really good opportunity just to see what, what's coming your way. Even though discovery is a good way to do that, mediation, oftentimes because these cases proceed to court pretty quickly. Uh, and when it's sometimes, you know, pro se litigants, uh, tenants on the other side, they may not file an answer or counterclaims. Simply not filing them doesn't mean that you don't have defenses. So when they appear on the date of trial um, and they haven't presented defenses, the court's not going to tell them that you can't present defenses. So you do need to be prepared. And that first opportunity to mediate is really critical. So with that large intro, uh, if we can go to the next slide, please. So uh, in Massachusetts, we now, uh, for a little while now, uh, under the standing order by Judge Sullivan, which has been continued uh, by Chief Justice, Chief Justice Horan, um, we have a two-tier system. Uh, once upon a time, on a complaint, uh, you would be able to identify the date you were going to court, uh, and that has long passed. Uh, we are now dealing with a new procedure, which in all likelihood is going to be a permanent procedure. Ultimately, you serve the tenant uh, so the court still doesn't know about it. That still remains the same as prior practice. Uh, you will enter the case with the court, and then the court's going to schedule it what they call a tier one mediation. Um, the tenant has the opportunity to file an answer or discovery three days prior to the tier one date. That tier one date under the standing order is going to occur 30, no earlier than 30 days after you enter the case with the court. It shouldn't be any later than 60 days. A lot of the courts are really getting it done, a lot of the housing courts within uh, or shortly after the 30-day period 
uh, following entry. So you'll know the mediation date, you'll identify that, put it on the calendar, uh, and you'll also uh, notify your client. Also important, which I don't know if we really covered in this entire process, you now need to serve that notice of the tier one event upon the tenant. So that's gonna be additional court costs that you are gonna be able to claim, but that service of the tier one event needs to occur by a landlord. So you now get to tier one mediation. You may or may not have received an answer or counterclaims. And your first opportunity to really hear what's happening oftentimes will be at this tier one event. Um, you'll be asked when you appear in court, if you're gonna, if you're willing to mediate, it's really a, a, an interesting question because that's what you're there for. Uh, but mediation is not required. Uh, it's not mandatory. And the court will tell you that, but they strongly urge it. And the housing specialist department in the in the court in the housing court is obviously extremely well trained, experienced, and able to really parse through some issues and really provide some guidance, uh, which is very helpful. If you're a new attorney or if you're new into landlord tenant law, they can be a great resource. So sitting down with the housing specialist, you don't need to wait for the housing specialist. They'll typically send you uh, to wait in the housing specialist department, whether depending on the courthouse, it's in a different floor or otherwise. Um, and you can reach out to the tenant uh, and find out what exactly is it that they're looking to do. Uh, is it that they've fallen behind? If it's a non-payment of rent case uh, due to some unforeseen circumstances, uh, is there an application for rental assistance pending, which is a very important question nowadays uh, with the recent passage of 239 section 15, which uh, is essentially codifying what we had as a temporary measure uh, during the pandemic, uh, where if there was rental assistance pending in Massachusetts, that has now become a permanent law that says with rental assistance application pending in a non-payment of rent case, the court is not going to be entering judgment or issuing an execution. That is a new law. We're, we're all still grappling with it and how the courts are really handling that. Um, so uh, maybe we'll do another seminar one of these days in terms of how really it's been after implementation. Uh, but this tier one event is a good opportunity to know, is there an application for rental assistance pending? Uh, and that will then dictate whether you're able to do an agreement versus an agreement for judgment. A lot of the courts are saying that they're not really going to sign off on an agreement for judgment where judgment will enter because of the way that they interpret 239 section 15. And like I said, it's a new law. I have a different opinion. Um, I believe that that's the court entering judgment. We do have under the rules of civil procedure, uh, and I believe it's rule 50, that talks about when an agreement is filed by parties, by litigants, that that constitutes the judgment and the de decision of the case. So it doesn't really require court endorsement, um, but the court will tell you that it's not really a court order unless and until a judge is signed off on it. So there is that back and forth, but one way or the other, Right now, the way it stands is uh, the majority, if not all of the housing court judges are not really gonna be keen on entering an agreement for judgment when there's a pending application for rental assistance. So they will allow you to enter into an agreement, which we'll get to in a second in terms of the distinctions, uh, but that's, that's really what you're doing at the first tier event. If the tenant does not show up at the first tier event, obviously uh, they can be dismissed under the standing order. So they do need to appear. Resolutions can be creative. Um, so aside from knowing what the defenses and claims are going to be from the tenant, 
uh, it, it's fun sometimes. I, I know that may sound crazy, but in my experience, it's, it's actually become quite fun to try and figure out uh, creative ways of resolving a, a, a summary process case. You obviously have a landlord and a tenant that are at odds for whatever reason. It might be non-payment of rent, or it could be smoking, disturbances, having a pet that wasn't authorized, subletting, fraud, you name it. But sometimes coming up with creative resolutions is fun to, to say, okay, well, I hear you. I hear what your concerns are. Uh, I hear now the tenant's concerns. How is it that we come up with a solution where both parties can live with it? And that's important because, and the court will tell you this too, uh, when you can come up with a resolution, it takes away uh, the potential for something to get missed by a judge who is hearing a case and then ultimately making a decision themselves. They're going to hear the case, uh, whether it's a judge or jury, and they're going to make, for lack of a better way of putting it, a judgment call on what they think should happen in that case. They might miss something that when it's your case or your client's case or the tenant's case is very personal for them and something that they would have wanted addressed. You can put that into an agreement. So it gives you that opportunity. Um, so uh, you will notice that housing specialists have different techniques uh, and different mediators uh, might give you a different piece of advice or they might even urge you to enter into a specific type of an agreement. Um, that's why it's important to know your court, know your housing specialists. Um, again, after practice is really the only way you're gonna learn about that. Uh, but know how to, when to push, when not to push, for instance, in terms of what you're either entitled to or what may need to go before a judge. The housing specialists are extensions of the judge though. So even though they'll tell you that I cannot be called to testify on this case, they'll say that during the initial intro, during the mediation, they will potentially uh, relay some information to a judge if a case is gonna uh, proceed. So again, with a very long sort of explanation on this slide, it brings us then to the next slide, which is if you're gonna enter into an agreement, what are some of the common terms that you might put in there? Um, term of art, as a lot of you may or may not know, it's not really rent when you've terminated a tenancy or when an agreement for judgment might be in place, it's use and occupancy. And uh, a common provision will say that use and occupancy is due by the first, perhaps it'll say no later than the fifth. Again, uh, that, that no later than the fifth often comes up when you know that a tenant um, might have let's say social security or disability is their primary source of income. If we know for a fact they get that perhaps on the third of the month, um, then we do by the fifth of each month. Granted, that's outside of what the lease provides or dictates, but these agreements are ones that will highlight the important terms that might be a modification from what a lease might otherwise provide, but this is what the, tenant, uh, the parties are gonna agree to, to resolve this case and move forward. And then the core costs are in there. Uh, core costs are statutory under 186 section 11 uh, in a non-payment of rent case. In order to cure, a tenant needs to pay interest costs and all rent due as of the date of payment. Um, but again, that's a negotiable point. Uh, depending on how strong or weak your case might be, you oftentimes will hear from a tenant, well, can we waive core costs? Can we split core costs? A lot of our clients don't do that uh, since it is something that they are entitled to. But uh, again, it's a negotiation point. The judgment or the balance depending on whether you're dealing with an agreement or an agreement for judgment, uh, would be paid according to the following schedule. You might put dates, amounts, et cetera, uh, and whether there's rental assistance pending. Um, you may wanna put in there that payments need to be by certified funds. That's important if you have a history of a return uh, check or insufficient funds. Uh, the next 
paragraph is one of the important ones with rental assistance nowadays, right? Which says that you may obligate them to apply for rental assistance, provide proof of it within a certain time frame, identifying that it will cooperate with requests to process that application, and that accepting the rental assistance does not waive the terms of the agreement. Um, so some of the courts are saying that if you have the entire balance paid off entirely, at that point, um, the case must be dismissed. But uh, for those of us that have been practicing in this area for some time now, you'll know that it's been a while where we um, we're doing agreements that said you'll pay the balance as follows. And then for a period of time, maybe six months, uh, you'll continue to pay your rent on time to ensure that we don't have to file a new case. Uh, from my standpoint, I represent landlords, so I'm jaded. Um, that's important because you don't want to have to file a brand new case with brand new core costs uh, and then have multiple cases on a tenant's, let's say, history uh, when they fall behind in the future. You have one case open, um, those core costs are the same. And it just provides that opportunity to see, is rent being paid timely? Is it not? Can we go back into court to potentially resolve this rather than, if, if you need to, rather than um, having to file a brand new case? Um, so uh, another provision right under that is that they don't qualify understanding that they're responsible for the balance and they would have to pay within a certain time frame. That might be hard to do, but uh, you can always put language in the agreement that says that uh, the parties will go back to court or negotiate uh, amongst themselves reasonably for a re, uh, repayment plan and that either of them can file a motion if they feel that they haven't been able to come to those terms. Um, a lot of our leases say that legal fees are something you're entitled to. The court's not going to issue an execution because a tenant has failed to pay re uh, reasonable attorney's fees. They also need to make that determination, what is reasonable. So um, we oftentimes suggest the language that's in this uh, slide that just says that we reserve the right to assess it. Um, the defendant does not waive the right to contest it, uh, but it's, it's not part of this agreement essentially in terms of uh, a material violation if they fail to pay those amounts. Um, and then the agreement is not waived by any recertification or execution of a renewal lease. That is important because there are some uh, judges and case law that says that if you sign a new lease, it's considered to be a new tenancy. So that tenancy that you terminated that's subject to a court agreement has been reinstated by a new lease or a renewal being signed. Next slide. Sorry, I talk so much, I think, there we go, all right. Um, these are just some fault terms that we have in there and I'm not gonna go through each one of them, but I will highlight some of the important, important ones that I think uh, are very good to know and to use as a resource when you're in the housing court. The housing court has the services of the TPP, Tenancy Preservation Program. It is an amazing program uh, run by pretty exceptional people. Uh, and once upon a time, it was for only those that uh, tenants that might have a disability or uh, some issue that obviously brought them to court. For, for the most part now, they will assist with almost any case, um, but they, they obviously are limited as well in terms of what their resources are. Um, but it's a wonderful resource, should be utilized if when you sense that there might be an issue going on that's causing the violation or the issue with a, a, your, your client, and uh, using their resources. Put a provision in there that says that they'll continue to cooperate with TPP, uh, and then they can provide us with updates. Uh, obviously, HIPAA becomes a concern there if it's a disability-related or medical issue. Um, but just to let us know that they're cooperating, letting, letting the landlord know that they still maintain those services in place. Um, so, um, again, the other provisions are pretty standard. The first one is about behavior. The third bullet point is about the apartment maybe not being clean or cluttered. That's a common provision you may be able to use. Um, and we provide this language for you through uh, this seminar as well. Feel free to refer back to it. 
uh, and see if this is some language you might be able to use, modify, et cetera. Smoking is the fourth bullet point. Um, Animal-related uh, provision is on the fifth one. Uh, subletting is the sixth one, which has become pretty hot in terms of Airbnb and some of the short-term rentals that's going on uh, way too rampant nowadays. People are uh, seeing a, a, an opportunity to make some quick bucks with uh, renting out their apartment rather than living in it. And then the last one is just not allowing anybody to stay there beyond a temporary stay. So if somebody's there as an unauthorized occupant. So um, again, feel free to use these, refer back to it. And uh, one of the great things about VLP too is uh, that you know we'd like to be a resource. So if it, it comes to the point that you need to ask a question, feel free to reach out and we can provide you with language we might've used in the past. Another one that's not on here is reasonable accommodation language, which ultimately says that in the event that uh, uh, it may be suggested that the tenant has uh, indicated that an accommodation is necessary, this agreement constitutes the uh, accommodation to which the tenant would be entitled, uh, which does not waive their right to ask for further or future accommodations, but not to the extent that it would alter the material terms of this agreement. Again, you can imagine how many times I've done this that I can just spit it out because uh, we've uh, put those provisions in pretty regularly. Next slide, please. So uh, just wanted to go over a little bit the distinction between an agreement for judgment and stipulation, which I did allude to a little bit. I know it comes out a little bit blurry here, but the idea is that um, one of them is an agreement, which is just an agreement that each party is bound to do certain things. And the effect of not doing it may result in entry of judgment in the future. And the reason it's may result in uh, entry of judgment is because you're not going to be able to get judgment if there is a pending rental application. Again, not that I agree with that, but uh, that's the way the 239 section 15 is being interpreted nowadays. Um, it also gives the opportunity, uh, and I apologize, that's Alexa in the background. I know we're recording. She's trying to remind me to stand up. So um, the, the benefit of an agreement versus an agreement for judgment to a tenant is obviously that there is no judgment that enters unless there's a violation. There is no real call it harm or detriment to a landlord in doing an agreement versus an agreement for judgment. There is one, if you will, uh, which is when judgment enters, there's a 10-day right of appeal. And it's also um, uh, it's also the date essentially used to determine when your appellate rights expire. When it's an agreement, judgment enters, even though some in the past we were able to do nunc pro tunc language, which that just means that it's as of the date of the agreement. So nunc pro tunc would have said, for instance, in the past that uh, this agreement, if it's violated, judgment will enter nunc pro tunc as of the date that you filed it. Uh, there is some recent case law that essentially discourages that type of language. Uh, so it may or may not be enforceable. Uh, and that's one of the call it harms of doing an agreement versus an agreement for judgment. When you do an agreement for judgment, judgment has entered. The appellate rights really start from that date. And there really is no right of appeal. Uh, it's just whether any subsequent violation and where a judge has made a determination that uh, it constitutes a material violation that entitles the landlord, let's say, to an execution, whether that decision was arbitrary, whether that decision was not supported by the facts behind it. But uh, to appeal the underlying case is dead um, after the appellate rights have run if you do an agreement for judgment. So I know that's a lot of information. I apologize uh, that I put that at the end. But again, uh, we are open for questions at the end. So I think that's my last slide. Okay, thanks, Ted. Uh, so now uh, I'm just going to talk about a couple of issues that can arise after a judgment has entered, either by a default 
uh, or if a judgment might enter after trial. So we can go to the next slide. So I'll only have the one slide. There's just a couple of things to talk about. So like Ted talked about, um, uh, from a date uh, where a judgment is entered, there's a 10-day appeal period. And this is the case, whether it's a judgment by default where a tenant doesn't show up to a mediation. But it's also the case if um, there's a judgment entered during a trial, there's a 10-day period where the tenant can appeal the judgment. So in the case of a judgment by default, uh, then during that 10-day appeal period, the tenant can go to the courthouse and file a motion to remove the default judgment. And then if that is the case, there'll be a hearing on that where a judge will hear the reason that the, uh, the tenant did not appear at the tier one mediation. And if there's a good cause reason, such as medical infirmity uh, or some sort of other emergency, a judge can remove the default and put a new tier one mediation date on the docket uh, and then the case will just continue from there. If there's not a good cause reason that the tenant didn't show up at the um, at the tier one, then that motion will be denied. And then uh, the landlord after that appeal period can file a request to issue execution, which is a very simple document that just says that the appeal period is ended, a default judgment is entered, and the landlord can get an execution which is the document that gives a landlord legal authority to physically move out a tenant uh, after a judgment. So in the case where there is not a default judgment uh, and where there's a agreement uh, or an agreement for judgment, uh, where that is violated, a landlord uh, can file a motion for execution where that's more a more in-depth document where the landlord has to give the reasons that um, the tenant violated the agreement, what sections of the agreement, uh, at what dates, those kinds of things. And then there will be a hearing on that motion. Um, and then the landlord can talk to the judge and say uh, how the tenant violated the agreement and request that an execution enter in favor of the landlord. And if the motion is granted, the court will mail out that execution and the landlord will have that. And then we get to the next part of this post-judgment uh, post stuff. Uh, which is the formal uh, notice uh, by the sheriff of a 48-hour uh, notice to physically move out the tenant. So the landlord will take the execution and give that to either a sheriff or a constable service, uh, and they will give this 48-hour notice on the tenant. Uh, and then the tenant can file a stay of execution, uh, which is a motion uh, they go to the courthouse and ask the judge to essentially stop the eviction because of extenuating circumstances. Uh, and this, uh, a stay is not typically allowed in the case of a non-payment of rent case, uh, but if there's a no-cause case or a cause case, um, a hearing is granted where the tenant can ask for more time to move out, uh, explain any other extenuating circumstances. And the judge has a wide degree of um, of leeway they're allowed for a giving amount of time to allow the tenant to continue to stay in the apartment. Uh, the maximum, I believe, is around a year, but I've seen judges grant seven days or another month or something like that. Uh, and then if the stay of execution is denied, we move into this final part of the post-judgment process where the constable service or the sheriff uh, contracts with a moving company, either jointly with the landlord or some of them work with their own moving companies. Uh, and then they will move out the tenant's possessions uh, from the unit and they will store it uh, in a registered holding facility 
uh, at the expense of the landlord usually. Uh, so the tenant, the landlord can recover those costs sometimes from small claims, but when our clients are dealing with this kind of thing, this can be a large amount of expenses. It can be thousands of dollars to move out and store, pay for constable costs, pay for court costs. And so it can be a, a big financial burden on our, on our clients to, to deal with this situation where they just want their home back because the tenant hasn't been paying rent and, you know, six months or a year or however long it is. So it can result in a difficult situation that doesn't have any easy answers. And yeah, it's it's a disheartening to see sometimes. So that's sort of what I have about post-judgment uh, issues. And so thank you all. Thanks, Tim. Looks like I'm next. I'm Dana Cohen and my role in all of this doesn't really involve going to court, although I do have uh, several housing court cases in process. And all the information that I've heard so far has been very uh, helpful, useful, and ones that I have actually experienced in representing some landlords. So importance of a valid title ownership, uh, it kind of goes to your due diligence in knowing your client. So if someone comes into your office and says, um, I've got an issue, I've got a tenant, I've got a problem with, then there are some questions you need to really ask to get to know your client and the property. One of which is, do you actually own the property that, uh, thank you for that, do you actually own the, the property uh, that you're seeking to bring an action on? So some people might have a property owned individually, jointly with someone else. Maybe they transferred into a trust. Maybe they received the property through a parent uh, who has since died and got it through probate or transferred it to an LLC or a, a corporation or they transferred it to a, a, a trust. So you have to make get to know your client. One way of doing that is searching the records at the Registry of Deeds. So the registry, uh, we have 22 counties in Massachusetts and all different uh, cities and towns are included in specific counties and that's where the records are kept. So at the Registry of Deeds, we have two systems of recording. One is registered land and the other is unregistered land. And in each uh, system, you can access grantor and grantee indices to determine a trail of property ownership. It shows you who owned the property, who then sold the property, who has a mortgage, who has a lien, whose lien has been released. And then you really wanna look for the latest deed uh, proving ownership to confirm that, that your client is in fact the owner of the property. So when we do this research, um, we find that they may not in fact own it, but they put it in a spouse's name or it's still in a, a parent's name. And I think when you go to court, especially housing court, uh, you'd wanna make sure that you're representing the, uh, the right landlord or the right plaintiff in a case. If it's an LLC or a corporation, they must have an attorney represent them in housing court. If they're an individual, they don't necessarily need an attorney, but of course we wouldn't recommend that based on our experiences in housing court. 
they really should have legal assistance guiding them through the, the system. Sometimes at the registry of deeds, um, the name may not show up or the address is different. So we access the database of the various cities and towns with the tax assessors, and that helps piece together the puzzle as to who might um, actually own that, that property. So it's important to get that done. And um, believe it or not, that, that pretty much uh, concludes my presentation. It's pretty simple, doesn't involve going to court. These uh, public records are, are available online. If you search at masslandrecords.com, uh, it's overseen by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And um, that's part of your due diligence. And I, I hope it's uh, this was in information important and useful to you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, as you've heard already early on in this webinar, my name is Jennifer Caraballo, and I'm privileged to work amongst a truly amazing group of spectacular individuals at the VLP. Personally, it is an honor to be able to assist people in any way and even more satisfying when it comes to our often overlooked and ignored small landlords. We collaborated with many programs in the effort to achieve our goals amongst these programs is the Residential Assistance for Families in Transition Program, otherwise known as RAFT. This program is a state-funded program that aims to help keep the residents of Massachusetts in stable housing when facing eviction, loss of utilities, and other housing emergencies. This program first piloted in 2005 and was officially adopted by the state in 2006. Programs like these and the Emergency Rental Assistance Program were especially helpful during the COVID-19 crisis as many had difficulties with their financial obligations during this time. We advocate for our landlords in order to achieve benefits with these programs to better the quality of life for our landlords and also their tenants as we hope that we can sustain tenancies in the process of moving a step closer to financial stability by applying to these programs. Currently, the RAF program added a benefit for uh, residents in Massachusetts who are facing foreclosure. And in order to qualify for these benefits, the individuals applying must have an income of no more than 50% of the area median income or no more than 60% if the household is at risk of domestic violence. In either case, the household must be at risk for homelessness or housing instability. And a household does not need to have legal immigration status in order to qualify for RAFT. You can apply for RAFT online or in person at a designated location. A location um, can be made available for, for you on mass.gov. Many of our landlords that we assist at the VLP find it imperative that we advocate for them during the application process of the RAFT program. Language barriers and being novice computer users can play a part in this need for assistance, amongst other things, as there can be challenges during the application process. Some of the challenges that we have faced are the following. Getting the client to gather all the information required to complete the application and the need to continuously resubmit documents per RAA requests for different reasons, typically because they deem the documents illegible. Many times, multiple copies of the same document need to be submitted. Oftentimes, our landlords do not have access to the technology needed to submit a document 
um, once, let alone multiple times, and uh, we assist with that. The second challenge can be getting answers from the RAA regarding application status, missing documents, and denial reasons. This information is not available in the portal and we need to call to verify any of this information. A third challenge um, would be that there needs to be a matching code to proceed, but the code is not always provided immediately. There is a code provided to a tenant or a landlord application that must be added to connect this application between a landlord and the tenant for arrears owed. The raft application needs to be completed in one sitting and this particular code is not provided immediately. The fourth challenge during the application process would be having to find additional resources for the clients when they owe more than what they can be awarded which in turn makes them ineligible to receive any funds. If the RAF program cannot cover the full debt the client owes when applying for benefits, the RAF program then requires proof of an additional resource that will be used prior to approving any benefits the client may be eligible for. This requires connecting with a multitude of programs like the Salvation Army, for example, churches and private organizations that will be willing to make a donation for our clients. If this additional benefit is not found available, the client will become ineligible to receive any funds. The fifth challenge that we find during the application process is navigating the RAF portal there are limitations for advocates. It's unclear which portal should be used for utilities and mortgage. Navigating the RAF portal can be found to be challenging, especially during the application process. Inaccurate selections can lead to applications being denied and the need to reapply for benefits. Many of our landlords do not have the luxury of losing any amount of time as they are facing the possibility of losing the home they worked so hard to obtain. The sixth challenge would be that there is uncertainty in accepting RAF money when there is an active eviction. Many of um, our landlords believe that accepting RAF from their tenants will create an unrepairable problem with any legal issues they may have at the time um, with said tenant. Um, I will now pass this topic over to one of our many dedicated attorneys, uh, the wonderful Alexandra Roman, who will dive deeper into the legal issues that can surface when a RAFT application has taken place during an act of eviction. Before I go, I would like to thank you all for sharing your valuable time with us. A quote I've heard in the past is, helping one person might not change the whole world, but it could change the world for one person. That is what we strive to do in the VLP, one person at a time. And I feel blessed to be a part of a team that is eager to extend a helping hand to those in need. I also hope that if you can spare some more of your valuable time in the future, you would be motivated to also extend a helping hand to those in need with us at the VLP. Thank you. Next slide. Actually, don't go to the next slide, please. Thanks. <laughs> oh, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> so now that Jenny said a bunch of nice things, I'm just going to yell legal issues at you guys for a little bit. So 
the issues with taking raft when you have an active eviction, first of all, if raft fully covers your arrears and you have a non-payment case, no, you don't. Your case is gone. So if you filed for non-payment, but the fact of the matter is that the landlord wants that person out, you can't take raft, which is in and of itself an issue. If your tenants apply for raft, the court will not make any forward progress. They will not issue a judgment. If they apply after judgment, but before execution, they will not issue the execution. You have to wait until that application is done pending and it's getting a, a touch better, but it takes a long time. So you are sometimes kind of stuck and most claims are legitimate, but we've had tenants, we've seen tenants who will apply for raft even though they know they're not going to get it, they don't qualify because they know that they'll give them more time. Finally, there is an appalling ambiguity that has caused some courts to feel that a no-fault eviction where Raft pays the arrears in full should also immediately be um, dismissed. Also, some RAAs, which are Raft Administrating um, or Associations, they will, or Rental Assistance Association, what? It's an RAA. Some RAAs will give an agreement to the landlord and say, if you take these funds, you are not allowed to evict, even if it doesn't cover the full amount, even if there are other reasons. And the landlord needs to sign that in order to get the funds, which a landlord likely needs desperately, especially when they're in the situations that our landlords are in, where they are reliant on these rent checks to keep them going from day to day. So RAFT is an amazing program. It does incredible things. It saves a lot of people's homes. It is not perfect. And it does present a considerable risk when you have an active eviction going. Next slide. Uh, I'm going through some bragging rights, and in the interim, I was hoping the attorneys could take a look at some of the uh, questions that are in the Q&A. We have the first two I know that Chris is going to grab, and then the others regarding raft. Anyone can pop in. Um, but the one thing is that nothing today is predictable in the landlord-tenant law, and no matter what side you're on, it's about as clear as mud as we all make our way through post-pandemic and how do we keep stabilizing tenancies. But in our time that we've been around, which is about two years, um, we have been able to obtain $1,772,000 on behalf of our small landlords who have qualified for our services. And 
43% of them are seniors. They speak 15 different languages. We've reached out to uh, 95 community organizations who are now collaborating with us, not only in helping us help a landlord, but also helping us find the landlords. And 1,730 people are um, signed up to receive our newsletter. So thank you everybody who has been able to help move us forward. And that includes not just the lawyers who volunteered and the staff people, but uh, the community organizations, the courts, the housing specialists, um, everyone has kind of jumped in to try and stabilize the moderately priced housing market. Because think about it, you've got a small landlord, English is a second language, they haven't received rent in two years. They rely on the rent to pay their mortgage, they're being foreclosed, they're about to lose their home, and they need to provide heat in the wintertime for their tenants, which they're required to do. It's a very unfortunate situation all the way around. We fight hard for our landlords and um, to reiterate what Jennifer said so eloquently, um, consider volunteering with us. Help us help them. Help us sustain the tenancies that we can sustain and help us at help these landlords access resources that will be beneficial to them. Help us educate them on how to be good landlords and keep their homes. And we can go on to the Q&A. Sure, so I'll, I'll jump in on a couple of the questions. Um, one is an interest, a very interesting one and a tough one about can you serve a notice to quit for two or more different reasons like non-payment um, and cause. And, and I would say the answer is it's complicated. There isn't a lot of good authoritative law on this, but I would advise against that. And the reason in that particular instance is that there's a statutory cure right for, for non-payment. And so if you give a notice that's non-payment and cause and the tenant cures the non-payment, the tenancy should be reinstated. And so I think you can run into a problem. And I have seen judges dismiss cases for that reason when you have a dual notice. What I typically do if I have non-payment and cause is I go with the cause and then I say, while non-payment is not a basis for the termination of your tenancy, you still owe X amount and you still have an obligation to pay that and your landlord reserves its right to seek any unpaid rent as an account annexed to any summary process action they file. So you can still seek that money without making it a basis for the case. So I, I would caution um, you know, th 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 that you be careful about that. In terms of how long, if there isn't a period, th th the question is for how many days should a notice, notice quit be if there isn't a period specified in the lease? Um, I would do 30 days in that instance to, to, to be careful. So, Chris, uh, if if you don't mind me jumping in, um, most leases are thirty day, or most uh, rental uh, periods are thirty days, but I, I believe it's whatever the rental period is. So, if if you have a lease that's you know rent is due on a biweekly basis, yeah. which are rare but they occur, it's actually biweekly on a cause. Uh, if it's monthly, then it's monthly, like you're saying, Chris, thirty days. If it's bi-monthly, whatever which is extremely rare. I don't think I've ever seen those, but it's whatever the rental period. 
is. Great. Um, our next two questions have to do specifically with RAFT, and I know that there are different answers and different judges in different places that are interpreting it in different ways. So I'd open it up to everybody to give their opinions on how best to advise a landlord in these circumstances. Uh, Ted, you want to start us off? Um, sure. Um, so I think the question is ultimately, when do you take it? Or Because I, I know it says, hold on, I want to see exactly what the question we have. It says, can I lawfully, no, where is it? Regarding Rafter 3, some of which you would likely address me, please. Am I not seeing it? Can you, can you point me to the exact question? I'm sorry, Donna. Oh, no problem. I can actually read it to you if you like. Yes, please. Under the August 2023 reenactment of the terms of Chapter 257 of 2020, what happens in a non-payment case if the RAF payment comes through and is less than the arrears owed? Okay, and is less than the arrears owed. So I actually have a case that's pending in the appeals court, which is going to be heard next Friday. Um, and um, one of the issues that we're going to be grappling with or actually arguing about is whether the form language that was in the um, owner terms uh, when you were given rental assistance somehow create a situation where you're required to dismiss the case, uh, even though there is a deficiency created. I'd like to think the answer is no. Judge Malamud agreed with me. Uh, we have that now pending, not this Friday, but next Friday uh, for the appeals court to consider. Um, but my, my uh, interpretation is that no, you are not required to dismiss if it's less than the amount of the arrears. What they did require, and they often will email your landlord about before they will issue payment, is that they will require you to come to some kind of an agreement or upload something by the landlord to their portal that says that you are willing to enter into an agreement on the deficiency. It'd be pretty generic. So it could literally just say, I am willing to enter into a reasonable repayment agreement on any deficiency that RAF does not cover. Um, We've provided that language to our clients uh, that just says that I'm willing to enter into a reasonable court-ordered agreement for any deficiency that the rental assistance does not cover. And that's worked. They then send the payment. You then still, if you have a pending case, uh, go in to do an agreement on whatever the balance is. Uh, so that's that's how we've handled it. Uh, but like I said, it's a new statute. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how they interpret it. We, we've had some clients say that there's no designation in the language in the statute on who has to deny the application for rental assistance. Like, does it have to be denied because it was fully processed or not? So they say, I'm not willing to accept it. I, landlord, am denying the application for rental assistance because I'm not willing to participate. So we'll see how all those play out. But. Uh, we only have two minutes if we're going to remain on time. And Sadie, do you want to take a do you want to take a crack at what your firm is doing? And then Chris, really quickly, one minute each, and then we'll say our thank yous. Yeah, so when it comes to a non-payment case and there is RAF money that is um, being received, most of the time we end up at court at the first tier event coming up with some type of agreement. Um, and part of that agreement is that we are willing to accept RAF money as well as simultaneously having an agreement for a repayment plan. Um, so once that raft money is uh, given to us, 
the repayment plan and the agreement still continues. Um, so that's how we handle it. Chris? That's essentially what we do. We we have standard language in all our agreements for, for non-payment where we say we're willing to accept RAP funds only subject to the agreement. And so long as the acceptance of those funds doesn't affect the landlord's rights under the agreement. Um, and I've had a lot of luck both with RAFT and with stricter programs like Boston Rental Relief, which is much stronger on the dismissal, dismissal piece, where I've gotten them to make exceptions, where we say, listen, we're trying to work with the person, but we, needed a, we need the case to be maintained. And they've had some flexibility sometimes. In order to keep time, I'm going to say thank you, everybody, for joining us. Please consider volunteering with us.